begin. Okay, time to begin. All right. Um, now we're uh, going to look at our next use, which is uh, to indicate an alternate textual use of the Old Testament. To indicate an alternate textual use of the Old Testament. Number 10. Before I explain that, um, do we have any questions about the prototype use that we just talked about? Um, I gave a lot of illustrations because it's kind of a, most people aren't familiar with this use of the Old Testament. Yes. Is there anything particularly you do to go about identifying that? Is there, a, in other words, how do you identify that? How do you spot when that's happening other than just reading the Bible many times? Or is yeah. that the key method? Well, number one, um, I've given you a number of passages where it occurs, so remember those. <laughs> <laughs> I realize you won't be preaching the war scrolls, so don't worry about that. <laughs> but, um, uh, yes, um, you need to you need to own a Nestle on twenty eight tradition. Okay, now why do you need that? Because in the margins, see quotations. Uh, you recognize those, and I, I hope when you see them, you preach them. Uh, when people are going to preach. The Old Testament, they'll at least usually address something about the quotations. Sometimes they don't, but uh, hopefully most of the time they do. But it's the illusions. Most people really don't uh, work on, preach on, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, in, in the margins, uh, you, you can see, uh, not that you can see these margins, but you can um, see that there are references in, in the margins here. So uh, here, uh, those are illusions. And now, now some come from the Apocrypha and the Pseudepigrapha. I wouldn't worry about those, but um, and the ones that do come from the Old Testament are, uh, I would say, about eighty percent are probable illusions. Okay, or roughly. I, 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 that's not a scientific uh, estimate. Um, and by the way, some of what is in here, which is really helpful for other parallels in the New Testament, which can often enlighten your text. So you want to pay attention to those too. I mean, this is a really helpful uh, uh, book. In fact, um, I, I have a friend who's a pastor. He has no seminary education. He does not know Greek. And he said, how, how can uh, you help me learn how to preach better and, and interpret the Bible? <laughs> Get a Nesalala on 28th edition. So I don't know Greek. I said, don't worry about that. Use the margins. And he's been using the margins. And every once in a while, tell me, hey, I saw the margin, I saw this reference, it really helped me, and so forth and so on. So, so here's my long, that, that's a long uh, introduction to my answer. If you see a segment that, that, that's filled with allusions to a particular segment of an Old Testament book, there you go. That's a candidate. Okay. So, uh, and then what I would do is look for, maybe there's an outline too of this segment. <laughs> but if there isn't, it still may be saturated. And so, you know, it would, it would help me see, well, maybe this is a passage that I should see through the lens of that Old Testament segment. So you, you can do it. Um, just be aware of that. Okay. Um, I mean, that's how I did it. 
Um, so any, any other questions on, on that? that? That's a really important question, methodology. Um, so let's look at this. Now, let's look at some of the uh, examples of the textual use of the Old Testament. And um, here we have uh, the book of Revelation. And you'll notice at the bottom, says, now I'll just translate it in Greek. By the way, you, you, you can see some references here to the Old Testament, okay? Um, so it's talking about the beasts, which represent, represent the persecuting state. These beasts with the lamb will, uh, will make uh, war. And the lamb will overcome them. Now, why will the lamb overcome them? Because Lord of Lords he is and King of Kings. Now, that underlying phrase there occurs in only one text. And it's not in the text mentioned here, interestingly, though um, actually it does occur in, in, in this Jewish text of one Enoch, very interestingly. It does occur partially in Daniel 2.47. Um, but even before those two texts, it occurs only in Daniel chapter 2. And um, what's the next page? Verse 37. And this is, remember in Daniel, I mentioned yesterday, there are two Greek versions. One is called Theodosian. One is called the Old Greek. Theodosian really is more correspondent to the canonical Aramaic text. Uh, and, and you can see here, this text has verse 37, verse 37a, verse 37b. All of that is an addition to the canonical text by the Old Greek translator here. In other words, this guy's really produce, producing an interpretative paraphrase. And uh, but in so doing, he introduces this phrase, Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And it's on the lips of Nebuchadnezzar after he's been made a beast and after he's been humbled. And, and so Nebuchadnezzar says, I confess and praise that he is God of gods and Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Um, so that, that's Yahweh there that he's talking about. And um, and so Revelation applies that to Jesus Christ. He's Lord of Lords of King Kings. It does it again in chapter 19. Well, that's really significant because um, a, 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 a title of deity is applied to Christ. This is really a, a beautiful Christological text. Uh, now, you say, wait a minute. This is from a paraphrase of the Greek Old Testament. And the Greek Old Testament is sort of interpreting here uh, the original canonical text. Uh, well, that's okay. I mean, it becomes inspired, not there, but it becomes inspired when John takes it and applies it to Jesus. He is uh, the one ultimately who humbled Nebuchadnezzar, and he's identified with that, that one, and he is God himself. So it's a little tricky, but here's a case where a New Testament writer does allude to the Septuagint 
at a place that doesn't correspond to the canonical Old Testament, but it's an interpretative paraphrase of it. And, uh, and John takes a title from it and says, yeah, that's who Jesus is. So um, let's take another example here of a textual use of the Old Testament. Here, this is Daniel 7. And again, we have two uh, versions of um, Daniel 7. Um, one is called the Old Greek. Very famous. You'll, you'll, you'll be familiar with this. As I translate it, this is talking about one coming upon the clouds, the Nephilim, one coming upon the clouds of heaven as a Puyas as a son of man, he came. And as the ancient of days, he was presented. So likewise, uh, notice the bottom part here. Um, I'm having to hold it. But you'll see it begins with Uranu. So in the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and unto the ancient of days he came. So you see the get us there? That's unto. Notice at that very place, the old Greek. Wow, this is quite a challenge. The old Greek has hopes. My, what a difference an epsilon makes. Uh, one is unto the Son of Man came. The other is host. He came like the ancient of days. In other words, he, he's described as God, coming up to God. That's amazing. And I think, now that's an interpretation. Because the canonical text says he came up to. And the Greek version that says the same thing is, is, is a more literal version. This is a little bit interpretive, but I think it's good interpretation. Why? Because people who come on the clouds in the Old Testament, they're not people. Uh, the rabbis called God the cloud writer. So it's, 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 it's always God who comes on the clouds. And, um, and so that, that may be uh, an interpretation. It may have been influenced by you know, that idea that elsewhere God comes on the clouds, so this must be a divine figure. Now, what's very interesting about this is if you turn to Revelation chapter 1, and um, verse 12, we have a vision of the Son of Man. John says in, in chapter 1 and verse 12, you have your Bible open, and I turned to see the voice which was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one we on anthropu, one like a son of man, clothed to the feet, and girded across the breast with a golden girdle, and his head and his hair white as wool, white as snow. Well, who had white hair in the Old Testament? The Ancient of Days in Daniel 7 and uh, uh, verse... Uh, Verses 15 and following, sitting on his throne. So, so he's being compared here, the Son of Man, to the Ancient of Days. 
and um, and there are other comparisons to uh, uh, which, which apply references to deity of him. For example, later he's called uh, in, in verse 17, the first and the last. That comes from Isaiah 44, 6 and 48, 12, describing Yahweh. And so here we have a case where the Son of Man is described as the Ancient of Days, just as in the Septuagint. Now, is John dependent on the Septuagint? No, I don't, I don't think so. Uh, in this case, uh, he could be. It's possible that that's, this is a textual use. I'm kind of presenting it within this framework, but it may just be these are independent uses and um, uh, where, whereby both John and the Septuagint translator uh, understood the Son of Man to be God. Um, but it, it's, you know, it, it, it's viable, possible that John's been influenced by the translator. It's possible. Um, all right. Um, let's get another one. I have a number here. I'm just going to do one more. Uh, if you turn to Revelation 3.14, Revelation 3.14, I actually have it on the sheet there. And so we have here uh, in Revelation 3.14, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Um, that's what Revelation 3.14 says. Now, within the book of Revelation itself, and, and by the way, this is Jesus speaking. Jesus is developing what was said about him in chapter one and verse five, where he was said to be the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead. And um, so obviously here, He's expanding what faithful witness is. Jesus is actually exegeting what faithful witness meant in one five. What does it mean? Well, it means he's the amen, not just faithful, but also true witness. So he expands that. Okay, very interesting. But not only that, what we find is that um, this reference here, uh, where it says Christ, the amen, the faithful, and uh, true witness that this is a, uh, a reference to uh, Isaiah 65, 16 to 17. Now, amen in the Old Testament was usually a conclusion to a prayer, okay? And that's the way we do it today. There's one place, however, and there's only one place where amen is a description of God. And it's in Isaiah 65, right here, in verses 16 to 17, where twice God is said to be the God of Amen, the God of Amen. And, um, and so it's likely that Jesus calling himself the Amen is pretty unique. And by the way, I think this is a case, actually, where just one word <coughs> can be considered an illusion. It's very unusual. There's only one time Amen is an address. To anybody, and it's to God, and here it is uh, to Jesus, and I think he's he's identifying himself with the God of Isaiah. Now, notice here that some Greek Bibles, if you if you read right 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 in here, some Greek Bibles have um, one transliterates 
the Hebrew amen by the Greek amen, and that is Aquila. Now, Aquila is a recension or a version of the Greek Old Testament that tends to be more literal. So it's, it makes sense that he would just transliterate amen. But notice that uh, another Greek Septuagint translates as the true God. Amen is translated as the true God. Another translates it as God doing something faithfully. So God's being seen as faithful. Now, the Hebrew radicals in Amen can be pointed in one of three ways to mean Amen or faithful or true. Very interesting. And so um, I think it's more than coincidence that Jesus is further expanding Amen, the God of Amen, uh, and he first calls himself Amen, then it expands it. It's more than coincidence. That he expands it by the uh, renderings of uh, the Greek Old Testament. Not only is he Amen, but he's faithful, he is true, and uh, that's part of the Septuagint Greek tradition, and I think it would uh, uh, cause the hearers, the readers, to even further identify what he's saying with the God of Isaiah 65 in verses uh, 16 to 17. Because we know it's highly, highly probable that beginning with Amen in this passage, that's an illusion itself. So he's probably reflecting on what some of the hearers may have been familiar with from the other translations. Because remember, the Greek Bible was the Bible of the Jews. Yes? Um, with Revelation, it's like unique in the New Testament in that it's not, um, it's a vision that John receives. Yes. Um, how much how, how much of it would you see as this is John sitting down afterwards and he's yeah. he's actively thinking about the Old Testament and how much of it is more just what he receives was actually directly from Christ is there different sort of Paul's references might be yeah uh, <laughs> it's a very good question it's one I've reflected on uh, and first of all we know um, it's highly probable John sees things in those visions that um, are hard to explain. And so probably he goes to the Old Testament to describe what he saw. So yeah, he's writing down what he saw, but let's say he sees um, a vision. He says, oh, well, that's the vision prophesied in such and such a text. And so he uses the language of that text to describe it. So that's not what he hears about the vision. The way he describes it is, is, is from the New Testament. So, so there is composition, okay, of the vision. It's not pure vision, but it's, it's description of, of the vision. And, um, and so here, um, Jesus is, uh, is speaking. Is it possible that uh, we, we do know, if you look at the synoptics, that there are parallels where we know the speech is the same speech of Jesus, and yet different words are used. Now, I don't have a problem with that. Some people who have a very strict view of the inspiration of the Bible do have a problem, but I think there's this sense of, of what we call the uh, ipsissima verba, the actual words, and then we have the ipsissima vox, the voice 
And so it's just like reading a journal article. You know, a, a journalist might paraphrase what the politician said, all right? It's the same sort of thing. Could John have done that here? Maybe. Um, I, I doubt it, but it's possible here. Um, so, I mean, all things are possible, but uh, I, I think since Jesus is presented as speaking, probably John's not going to paraphrase it too much, but it's possible because we do have the precedent in the Synoptic Gospels, but it would still be the interpreting the voice of Jesus, something he intended, okay? So uh, it, would, it would not change that. Um, it's a very good question. It's a little easier to answer with provisions. Mm -hmm. uh, here you have a statement. And I think probably when John hears statements, I think he probably records them as they are. But I wouldn't be troubled if I found out when I get to heaven that he paraphrased it in line with the original meaning. So, yeah. Just like New Testament writers, not only in the synoptics will they paraphrase what Jesus said, they'll paraphrase with, even in a quotation. You have a quotation, not an illusion, a quotation where the words are different. And some things have been added or subtracted. And so they'll do that with the Old Testament as well. And I believe the reason they do is to bring out a particular slant of meaning that they want to bring out that they believe is uh, packed into the Old Testament reference. So, so excellent question. Any other questions along those lines? That's a hard one. Um, but that would be my approach. All right. Um, Now let's look at our next use. And I do have, uh, if it ends up that uh, uh, we have some time this afternoon, I'll give you one more textual use, which is very interesting, but I'm gonna move on now just to make sure I have enough time to get through everything I need to today. Um, the last uh, use, oh, sorry, not the last, number 11, uh, to indicate an assimilated use of the Old Testament. And I mentioned this before that sometimes it may be hard to know if an author is alluding or whether it's just part of the author being so saturated with Old Testament language. And, and that may be the case sometimes. Um, so, uh, for, for example, um, in uh, Revelation 5.12, you get this uh, statement about the Lamb. I believe it's about the Lamb. Maybe it's God. I'll, I'll just make sure here. Revelation 5.12. Thank you. Yes. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Um, now, those words occur in Daniel chapter 4 and verse 30, where uh, it refers by the might of my power for the honor of my glory. Um, <coughs> And actually, uh, 
I believe that's from Nebuchadnezzar describing himself. But you do have the words there. And then there, some of those words are applied to God. For example, in Daniel 2.20 and, um, and Daniel 4.37. Uh, so it may be an allusion to Daniel, but uh, it, it, it just may be that this language is used so much, not only in Daniel, that, that it just becomes you know, part of praise language in the synagogue and in other places uh, uh, where people might be praising God. Um, so uh, th this, this cluster of terms, uh, uh, I think may have just been multiplied in various uh, worship situations. Uh, and, and, and we have it in abbreviated form, for example, in a Romans 11. In, in verse uh, 36, um, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Uh, and you get Revelation 1 6 concluding in the same way. So, some of this praise language and glory language, it may. Uh, uh, come from the Old Testament, but it may just be part of the uh, author's own way of expressing things because he's just saturated with Old Testament language. Um, and on some occasions, this could come close to the stock and trade use or the proverbial use that we were talking about. Um, the last use I want to talk about is the ironic or inverted use of the Old Testament. Inverted use of the Old Testament. By the way, just one other uh, example um, of the use we just talked about, Matthew 6.13, um, where Christ says for years is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Um, though not all manuscripts have that, but that would be Another example, kingdom, power, glory, forever, amen. In other cases, perhaps just uh, expresses a saturation with the language of the uh, Old Testament. Okay, so let's look at this last one. Uh, we can call this the ironic use of the Old Testament, the inverted use of the Old Testament, or the antithetical use of the Old Testament. Now, we talked about this briefly the other day, that, that irony is saying one thing and meaning it's opposite. I use the illustration, if you saw me playing tennis and someone said to you, isn't Beale a great tennis player? That would be an ironic statement. Either to ridicule me or uh, if the person didn't like me or maybe just make a friendly joke and uh, knew me well enough, knew that the joke wouldn't offend me. Um, but they would mean the opposite. Um, sometimes for ridicule, mocking. Um, and uh, actually, I've written a book on uh, uh, irony. Um, it's, it's called Redemptive Reversals, um, published by um, Crossway Publishers. And it's a biblical theology of irony. And I contend that there are two kinds of ironies. There's what we call retributive irony and restorative irony. Retributive irony is when uh, the wicked think they're succeeding 
and they're actually failing. They're punished by means of their own sin. So for example, take Haman, uh, he builds the gallows to Mordecai, and he's hung on those very gallows. Very surprisingly, by the way, this is often, when the irony happens and it's fulfilled, it's, it's often surprising. Um, and it's a way of uh, uh, indicating, uh, indicating judgment. And um, we might call it ironic judgment. Uh, that, that's a classic example of it. But um, I argue all these ironies point to the cross. So even the Haman irony, ultimately, in scripture, one way or another, I think uh, these retributive ironies point to Christ um, and to Satan. Satan putting Christ to death, putting him on the gallows, and Satan signed on those same gallows. Then there's restorative irony, where it looks like the, the, the righteous faithful are cursed, and yet if they're faithful, they're winning a victory in the midst of their physical persecution and defeat. They're winning a spiritual victory. And that points to Christ in the midst of his defeat, winning a spiritual victory, because at the very point of defeat, he's taking the sins of people upon himself and delivering people from captivity of Satan. So um, that, that's sort of the idea of, of the book. Um, in terms of use of the old and the new, uh, I mentioned Galatians 3. Already, he who is uh, cursed is he who hangs on a cross from Deuteronomy, where that described the most the punishment of the uh, of the most heinous criminal in Israel, and now it's applied to the most honored person. That's ironic, and yet, thank the Lord that we have that irony, because that most honored person took that penalty for us, and, and that's the point of Galatians. Um, Likewise, I'd like you to turn to Romans 5. Look at Romans 5 with me. And we will look at this again, but in Romans 5, in verse 14. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who would not sin in the likeness of Adam's offense, who is a tupos. He's a type of him who was to come. So here, Paul sees Adam uh, or Christ being a mirror image of Adam. In other words, uh, Adam committed a sinful act and, and was punished for it. And Paul is saying, and that was a representative act, by the way, and Paul is saying that those uh, two representative things, act of sin, punishment, uh, that represented humanity, foreshadowed was a tupos, was a foreshadowing of Christ, the last Adam, who would also do a representative act, but this time an act of obedience leading to justification for those whom he represents, imparting to them righteousness. And so um, uh, if typology, by the way, and, and we're about to launch off into the rest of the afternoon, probably on typology, even though I've talked a lot about it. I want to talk more about it because um, part of the issue in old and new studies, this is really the, a big problem for a lot of people, typology. How does an event become prophecy? And um, 
And can you really find types in the Old Testament where beyond those that Christ and the apostles found? So I want to talk more about that, and we'll do that this afternoon. But uh, so far, I've argued that, that, that typology is what we call indirect typological prophecy. It is a form of prophecy. It's an event that foreshadows. Now, if that is the case, that has huge implications with this verse, because it means that Adam's fall was under the prophetic hand of God. That, that's a, a very um, important conclusion to make. Uh, Adam's fall was not accidental. It was ultimately there as a foreshadowing of a last Adam to come. And uh, that has implications for theodicy, the sovereignty of God, and so on. So old and the new brings us into those theological areas. Now, I want to come back also possibly to uh, an ironic use of the Old Testament in 1 Corinthians 10. Remember we talked about 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul in verses um, 5 through 11 describes Israel in the wilderness sinning and doing idolatry and twice says they were types. For example, in verse 6, these things happened as tupoi, types for us in verse 6. And also in verse 11, now these things happen to them typically, tupikos, typically. Um, uh, as I said, this may be an example of merely an analogical use of the Old Testament. But with those two uses of type, uh, and I'm going to talk about the actual meaning of the word type, the etym etymological meaning, the way it's really, it's, it's used outside the New Testament as well, uh, which will support the idea that typology is a foreshadowing. Uh, if, if those in the wilderness were a foreshadowing, if this is used typologically, which I suspect it is, then their sin in the wilderness foreshadowed uh, the sin of the Corinthians who would remain in idolatry. And Paul's warning would be, you need to come out of that. Not everybody perhaps will be part of the typology. Um, or could this be, uh, and I'm not convinced of this, but could it be antithetical typology that their sin points to uh, the Corinthians doing the opposite? I'd rather think it's the other way around. So uh, one other example here. Um, yeah. Would be um, the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel. Um, notice just these two points here. Uh, the Tower of Babel was an idolatrous temple. And, and the judgment of tongues led to confusion here. Uh, there's a reversal of Babel at the Jerusalem temple by creating tongues, it happened in the temple, leading to a unified understanding. And furthermore, um, you have this, so it's not, I can't get it all in. The division of humanity into 70 nations or tongues from the idolatrous temple of Babel in Genesis 10 through 11. Uh, is reversed here by the beginning unification of humanity at the Jerusalem temple with an abbreviated allusion to the 70 nations from Genesis 10 through 11. If you look at the, the nations there, 
It's an abbreviated uh, summary of, of the nations that were dispersed in uh, Genesis chapters 10 and 11. And so uh, I think this is more than coincidence. There are some allusions here to, uh, therefore, to the, uh, the Tower of Babel. How is it being used? I think, ironically, the Tower of Babel and the uh, confusion of tongues leading to dispersion was pointing to a time when uh, there, there would be another temple. And at that temple, uh, there would be tongues that led to unity. Um, now, one other thing that I, I, I mentioned, I, I want to come back just for a moment to number, um, uh, yeah, to number nine, the prototypical use of the Old Testament. I wanted to mention a few other uh, uh, thematic frameworks that I think are interesting. Um, because sometimes it's not just an Old Testament passage that provides a framework, but sometimes it's a theme. And we saw in a couple of cases, the theme of restoration dominated. So Paul would bring in passages from restoration because he had that theme in mind. If you turn to Romans 3, um, Romans 3 is an example of what we might call his uh, homartiological framework. Uh, because in Romans 3, verses 10 through 18, he's bringing together statements about sin to underscore that people are not righteous. Uh, none seeks for God. Uh, very famous. You're all familiar with it. Verse 10, as it's written, there's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. And you'll notice in your margin, if you have a margin in your, in your English Bible, you'll find that in Nesalalan. These statements come from the Psalms. They come from Isaiah. Um, and uh, other other passages, uh, mainly Psalms and Isaiah. So uh, this is an example where Paul wants to stress, in this segment, he wants to stress humanity's sin, sinfulness and inability to reach God. What does he do? He goes to different parts of the Old Testament that talk about that. He pulls them together. So this is a framework of the doctrine of sin, and he brings those passages together to do that. Uh, we won't turn to it, but you'll remember Hebrews 11. Some call it the Hall of Fame of the Faithful. And it's all about those who are faithful in the Old Testament. That's a framework of faith. The author of Hebrews is pulling from these places where people were faithful. He's organizing them together. And by the way, we could even say that Romans 3 and Hebrews 11 and passages like them is a biblical basis for doing systematic theology. Seriously. So... Um, Anyway, the earliest systematic theology you're going to find. Um, okay, now, so uh, again, in all these uses, except for the rhetorical use and the assimilated use, all of these uses involve the crucial role of Old Testament context in understanding the use. And again, remember C.H. Dodd in this book, According to the Scriptures. If you've not read that book, try to find that in a library. Um, uh, if you can find it uh, online, uh, buy it. I don't think there are many available. It's no longer published, unfortunately. Um, I don't know why it should be. But remember, he asserted that when an Old Testament passage is quoted or alluded to, that uh, when, when you look at where these passages are from, he, usually authors don't quote the same passages. There are a few cases, like Psalm 110 verse one, but New Testament authors uh, 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 across the span of them 
usually don't cite the same passage. And Dodd noticed that. But what he also noticed was, yeah, they're not the same passages, but for the, they're from the same Old Testament context, remember? Remember those contexts that I mentioned? Uh, Isaiah 40 to 66, Daniel 7 to 12, Genesis 12 to 22, Genesis 1 to 3, Deuteronomy 28 to 32. And so what Dodd said was, when you see an allusion or a quotation, probably there's an awareness of this segment from which it comes, whether it's an allusion, let's say it's Isaiah 53, 4. There's probably a broader consciousness of Isaiah 40, at least to 54. Um, so all of this points to an awareness of context, not merely single verses where they're carrying them out according to their own whim. But why did New Testament authors quote different verses from the same context? Because these contexts were taught them as important by Christ. So they were signposts to the overall context of the Old Testament from which they were quoted. Okay, um, we've gone through these uses. Uh, what we're gonna do now is I'm gonna propose a, uh, a nine step method for interpreting the use of the old and the new. But before we do that, does uh, anybody have any uh, <coughs> questions about some of these uses that may have arisen in, in your minds? Okay. Uh, when are we supposed to take it? Okay. It's a five minute break. Okay, let's take it now since we're, we're really at a breaking point. Okay. We will come back at 12 after. <laughs>